modify than the U.S. stuff is. Gotcha. Uh, we'll go to Dr. Paul. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. And this is for the other Ryan. Uh, so when we had General Mick Ryan on uh, last time, he was calling for that, you know, a thousand IF, IFVs will be needed to, get, you know, for a counteroffensive. But you know what? given some of the low quality of APCs and IFEs out there that would be potentially given, why not, would it ha- how, how would an MRAP suffice to, as a substitute instead? And I'm curious your thoughts on that, and would that get the job done for your task just as well as a, as a what, IFV or APC? Yeah, I mean, like an MRAP would work too, honestly. The, big, the biggest issue is the speed of being able to operate these things, like, not nothing against the general, but like any of these areas where they're taking stuff back, the lightweight vehicles are the best. And like, so basically a Toyota pickup truck with a machine gun mounted on it is going to be far quicker through a wet field than a IFV or MRAP. Um, they're going to still need the armor stuff, but a lot of these offensive, they've actually used mainly pickup trucks and stuff on. Um, and that's again, because a lot of these fields and the areas that they're trying to take back, you're not going to be able to get armor through these areas, um, at least in a, a quick enough manner to close that gap from artillery anyway. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, they need the IFVs, but at the end of the day, it's almost better to have maybe a pickup truck with a bunch of steel welded to the front and near the doors. You sound like you've spent a couple of years with the Kurd. Yeah, definitely. I was. I fought over near Bashika. I fought in Kirkuk against the Iraq Army during the Civil War. Um, Armor is not always the best. It can slow you down if you don't know what you're doing, uh, or if you just get bad weather. So, uh, travel light, travel quick. Just armor up the areas where the driver is, basically. I almost front ran Dr. Paul's question to remind him that you stay as far away from armored vehicles as you possibly can. Yeah, I do. I mean, they're just they're just targets, even if. If you have 10 of them, they're just going to lob an artillery barrage at it. And if you get stuck in a field, you're screwed. Um, I like pickup trucks. It's just a personal. I'd rather ride in the truck bed getting shot at any day than sit in an armored truck and get shot at. You sound like an Iowa farm boy now. So, uh, right, we've got a question from uh, CJ, our artillery guy. Uh, and he says, uh, we hear reports that Russia is using less tubed artillery and more rocket artillery due to ammo shortages. Uh, and he says rocket artillery, by the way, is more inaccurate. So are you seeing that? Uh, when I was in the Northeast recently, we got grad rocketed for like 24 hours straight. So I would say in where I was, yeah, um, that might just be their standoff distance too. I think they're trying to keep stuff further back. Uh, obviously, a grad has a little bit longer reach than their tube artillery does. So um, that might just be up in that area too. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say if it's across the whole front or not. But um, if they know there's like M triple sevens or something longer range operating, they're probably going to start using more of their grad rockets to uh, either hit that area or just smash the front line. Uh, good evening, Axel. Uh, I do have another question. Uh, what would you like to uh, share with U.S. military or uh, elected officials regarding uh, how to future support Ukraine? Um, outside of the heavy weapons. Uh, <clears throat> Probably try to source some more uh, old Soviet jets. I know they're training on the F-16 or something possibly, but in the meantime, um, I'm sure there's a country that would offload jets for a cheap price. Well, not cheap, but for a price that's a a decent price anyway for what's happening. Um, But yeah, outside of the heavy stuff, we need more like small arms. Um, I think there should be a bigger push to get the Ukrainians more of the NATO stuff because... 
uh, depending how long this war goes on, it's going to be a lot harder to get some of these other small arms. So, uh, you know, I would probably try to get more 5.56, 7.62 weapons over here uh, in like the half million amounts. But um, I don't know if we'll ever get that much, but it'd be nice. Funny you should mention aircraft. Um, I believe the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force mentioned today that sending Western manufactured fighter jets was not out of the question. And um, I have not had time to read his statements word for word, but um, it was also mentioned or shared with me uh, by another contributor to the space here that uh, someone else who is a Department of Defense uh, reporter and at least a verified account on Twitter, whatever kind of credentialing that would afford, had mentioned uh, explicitly that A-10s might be on the menu. Um, that would be awesome. I don't. I, I, they could probably pick up an A-10 quicker than they would be able to pick up the targeting of like the F-16, F-18s. Honestly, absolutely. Um, I think I think the uh, military used to have a street to seat program, and uh, for people that aren't well versed in how the military works, typically uh, if you become a pilot in the Air Force or the Armed Forces in general, you are an officer, not an enlisted person. Uh, a street to seat program references the ability to be an enlisted individual and not have necessarily a college degree, but uh, join the military and actually fly something like a helicopter or a plane. Um, if, and I'm not certain that the A-10 was part of the street to seat program, but if the A-10 were on the street to seat program, that would indicate that it's a relatively easy to maneuver and uh, master aircraft. And that would just indicate to me that it's, it would be much easier to get somebody trained up on it in a quick manner versus trying to teach them all the ins and outs of a, a uh, much faster fighter jet. Yeah, correct. The only thing like that's the, their anti-air would probably have a field day with the A-10s depending how they were used. But I think the Ukrainians would be smart enough to, figure out what areas they could operate in and at the height. Um, I've seen the Ukrainians fly their jets. They fly them lower to the ground than I ever would, but um, kudos to them for being that ballsy. But yeah, I think, I think if they could get F-16s, they'd probably be able to fly them quick. But again, it'd just be getting that, the targeting down and probably the maneuvering is going to be different on it. Uh, I've never been a fighter pilot, but I would think the uh, Ukrainians would be able to pick it up. Uh, most of their pilots that are still alive, obviously have a lot of experience now. So, it's not like you'd be throwing a person into a whole brand new experience. It'd just be getting the targeting software down probably. And then, you know, the maneuverability difference on the aircraft type. Yep. Maybe learning the controls, but uh, one of our frequent listeners and contributors here has already DM'd me and clarified that that was not, uh, the A-10 was not part of that program. That was exclusively for one of the helicopter platforms. So maybe I was getting out over my skis there. Um, needless to good, say, I mean, Congress has been trying to get rid of them for years. Just give them all to Ukraine. You, exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, needless to say, uh, the U.S. military has been trying to get rid of the A-10s for quite some time. And I think part of the hiccup in them being able to uh, retire that program is its overwhelming popularity among enlisted people who actually see those things go burr on the front lines. But also uh, because it's it uh, major components are sourced from congressional di districts all over the country. 
Yeah, I mean, the noise that they make when they're shooting is is an instant morale booster. Uh, It just basically makes magic on the front line. So um, I think they should never get rid of them, honestly, just because, I mean, you know, they've there's been ones where they've had, you know, engines blown off and other things and they still fly. But, yeah, they might be getting obsolete as far as the uh, current uh, anti-aircraft stuff is concerned. Yeah, no, I uh, I never want to see him retire the A-10s, but if, if we manage to lose 50 or so off of an inventory sheet somewhere, uh, I don't think it would be any great loss to our military readiness, and they would be uh, very much appreciated in Ukraine and dreaded by the Russians. Uh, I think we have uh, Luca next. Yeah, on the A-10s, I can tell you that uh, all my aviator friends... Uh, uh, they went like um, all together in the chorus of Ura when they um, heard about the potential for A10. They have been advocating for for that for a long time. So I think these are still leaks. So um, they're unverified. But we've seen this kind of unverified leaks. Like, oh, maybe triple sevens, or maybe Imarses, and then and then they became reality. It's almost like. Um, they won't like test the field, so this might happen, you know. I have absolutely no military service in my uh resume, but just as a kid growing up in the U.S. and having a, a particular interest in aviation at some point in my life, I think just about every young man or middle aged man my age had a uh, had a uh, crush on the A 10 airframe at one point or another. Those things are kick ass, especially when you see them go burr. Uh, if anybody has a question for Ryan O'Leary, uh, he is the uh, Ryan of the day. Please don't refer to me as Ryan. If you say Ryan, I'll assume you're talking about O'Leary. I like uh, how somebody, I don't remember who it was, the previous speaker gave us a uh, Ryan, Ryan, and Ryan hat trick with uh, General Mick Ryan. Uh, I did add a couple of new speakers to the panel here. Um, JJ, you've got a question. Yeah, I just wanted to know um, what we haven't covered with Ryan today that's maybe changed since the last time we talked to him that he wants to tell us about. Yeah, did uh, did you manage to find a pair of size 10 and a half shoes or boots yet? Yeah, actually, a Norwegian hooked me up with some. So thanks, Norway. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I'm no longer wearing my loafers on the front line, but actually the boots are comfy, so I'm happy with them. Do we need to get you some battle croc? I have a set, but I typically only wear those in like the barracks so i don't get them all dirty they actually cost me like 40 bucks i probably got ripped off but it's fine they're crocs well just be sure to throw that um ankle hook on the back and put them into tactical mode if you have to use them in the field definitely one stuff won't work uh if anybody has any questions for mr o'leary uh feel free to raise your hands this is not the ryan and ryan show Joe, you don't have to raise your hand. You can just come off mute. I think you're co-hosting more than I am these days. Oh, shucks. Um, so thanks. Uh, yeah, so Ryan, uh, I remember one time I asked someone, hey, what's uh, Ryan's Twitter handle? And they, they wrote back, I hate trenches. And like, I didn't understand. And I was like, okay, yeah, but what's what's his Twitter handle? And they're like, no, that's his Twitter So I was just wondering, um, you know, if you had any, I remember early on I asked you about trenches. Like, you know, they seem kind of shallow to me. And uh, But, 
in terms of uh, the sophistication of the trenches, it seems like they're getting a little more sophisticated. So I guess I'm asking uh, if you have any just general thoughts uh, in terms of trenches uh, lately, uh, the, the development of the trenches on the front lines. I always find that kind of interesting because that seems to be where most of the soldiers spend a lot of their time. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, they're getting better. Um, it really depends what area you're in. Uh, obviously, they're going to fortify more. Well, they've been fortifying more across the lines, but um, I still hate them. I try to avoid them like the plague. Luckily, my unit doesn't do too much trench stuff unless we did something stupid and we got stuck in one, so that's good. Um, <clears throat> but we still get stuck in them. Uh, lately, though, when I was in the Northeast recently, we actually got stuck in buildings versus trenches, so that'd be about the only time I wanted to be in a trench. But, um, yeah, I mean, they still suck to be in, especially if you're there for a long period of time. But it's usually the safest place to be. Uh, unless you get hit direct, you're usually typically okay. Uh, you might get a little bit of concussion if it hits near you, depending on what it is. But, um, yeah, they still suck. They're, they are getting better fortified, though, um, overhead cover and all that stuff. So, uh, If I'm off mute, I need to uh, clarify what a previous listener had asked. Um, I asked you what, if any, advice you would have for the U.S. Army regarding support for Ukraine. And what the listener was attempting to ask was uh, what advice or um, guidance you would give on supporting a country in the future in a situation like Ukraine. Um, basically, how could we have supported Ukraine better uh, up to this point? Uh, we probably could have took the reports 10 years ago more serious as far as, uh, you know, the, the end goal. Um, you know, 2014, 2015, when Russia had troops and, you know, that S-300 that shot down that Dutch, was it Dutch? No. It made no yeah, when they shot that down, you know, that should have been a time to get involved. Absolutely. Um, especially with the way these proxy war type stuff goes. It, I guess this really isn't a proxy war, but historically, whoever gets in first gets the cookie. Uh, luckily, the Ukrainians stood up and fought their asses off to keep Russia from getting any of that. Um, but I would say in the future, just be more cognizant. I think it was more of a political issue at the time. Uh, there was no political will behind it. Um, but we shouldn't have to. They shouldn't take. Thousands of genocide killed, and killed children in order to wake up the conscience of the world. Yeah, uh, correct. They killed, you know, they shot down a, a, a airplane with 200 civilians on it. What more do you need? I yeah, just, I mean, and then they still you. never took credit for it. They always said, oh, it was the separatist or it was the Ukrainians that did it. I mean, look, I Iran, doesn't, Iran, Iran doesn't even have a good track record, but even they fessed up and said, yeah, it was an accident. Um, well, Belling but, you know, shot a hole in that story just like they shot a hole in the MH17 plane. So um, I, I think whatever Russia's version of events were on that particular incident matters about as much as a sparrow's fart in a hurricane. But as far as uh, what the U.S. should take away from this, um, so the Kurds, the Kurds were a good example, and Ukraine is a good example of how the train and equip program should work. Um, you know, after the 2014 invasion, uh, it was like 2017, 2018, might have been earlier, might be a little later. Uh, you know, the U.S. started building out the NCO Corps, uh, working with the military more direct on training and stuff. Like, this is how our train and equip program should work. Uh, it's been an abysmal failure in a lot of cases in the rest of the world. Um, and that might be due to cultural differences, too, but... Um, we could, well, I mean, I can't really say it because the Kurds did it real well. 
I would say, yeah, they need to go back and sit down and figure out why it works so well and probably move forward with that. Uh, I mean, there's at least two textbook cases now where the train and equip program didn't falter. Um, the military didn't just up and run and all that. So uh, I would say they should probably look more closely why it was successful, um, who implemented what, and then probably try to get them from retiring so they can keep doing it. Uh, it just occurred to me, uh, somebody reminded me other, the other day that we've uh, retired the stealth fighter program, so we don't really have much of a use for any of those anymore either. Not sure uh, what we have in the way of spare parts for that airframe, but um, I sure wouldn't mind seeing one painted yellow and blue. Which fighter? The stealth fighter. Which one is it? I'll send you a meme. <laughs> was that uh, Luca? Yeah, that was me. Yeah, I'll, I'll hook you up. Give me a second, Luca. Uh, Portland, go ahead. I think I think that was called the F-117. Oh, yeah, the F-117. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Little black ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know the the first Iraqi war and then um, um, uh, Serbia, Yugoslavia. Yeah, there was one shot down over Yugoslavia um, during that genocide, and as I recall, the uh, crash site was quickly scooped up and sold off in parts to the Chinese, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, possibly the Soviets. I don't remember specifically. That's been a long time ago, and I was just a kid. It just uh, occurred to me that uh, I think Portland fought with the Kurds too. But uh, Portland, I don't know. Can you not hear us? Uh, maybe we should bump you down and uh, get you back up. Go ahead. I can hear you. What's up? Oh, your hands raised. Uh, do you have something you wanted to add? Oh yeah, no. I was uh, I uh, I was confused because you mentioned the Kurds. Um, yeah. So the F117 got retired because it had very very serious problems with maintainability. And its radar cross-section, while extremely low for its time period, is, is not as low as the current detection thresholds for the likely systems that it would be going up against. It also is, not to put too fine a point on it, an absolute bitch to fly. It's incredibly hard to fly. Um, Thanks for raining on my parade, Portland. Uh, yeah, sorry. The thing is, is that it has this flat bottom, which means that they weren't able to, uh, to, uh, put a cant to the wings, which means depending on what you are doing, um, at the point at which you, uh, you are maneuvering, your wings can behave either with positive camber or with negative camber, depending on how much they are flexing. So you go into a turn, and at the beginning of the turn, you've got nice controllability because the wings will cant upwards and will tend to bring you out of the turn. Um, and then you pull past a certain point, and the wings flex in the opposite direction, and all of a sudden you go from uh, anhedralism to dihedralism, if I've got that in the right order, and your plane suddenly uh, wants to continue the turn very, 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 very violently. So they, they had a really hard time finding enough pilots uh, that could handle its, frankly, absolutely terrible handling characteristics. Uh, it also didn't have a great payload. Um, so I would much rather see 
Ukraine getting A-10s, which again, you know, I've, I've been on this space before saying I don't actually rate the A-10 that high based on its performance when I was doing cool guy shit. Um, but the nice thing about the A-10 is it has very, very benign handling characteristics, incredible loiter time, and it is superb for the kind of extremely low-level penetration flying that the Ukrainians are, are mostly doing. So as an analog to the Frogfoot, but like turned up to 11 with actually good electronics, it's hard to beat. Ryan, any thoughts? It sounds like you're pretty much in favor of uh, A-10s to Ukraine, right? Yeah, I think it just, like I said, I think they'll get targeted quite easier, uh, probably by man pads more than the S-300, just depending, I guess, where they're at. But, I mean, it should be an easier A-frame for them to learn the targeting uh, and the maneuverability on versus the F-16. If we're talking about <clears throat> getting some in the, into Ukraine quick, but long-term, like the F-16s, F-18s, all that would probably be a better platform to train um, for the, for a more long-term solution, obviously. Right. And uh, let's go to Nightlight. Nightlight, go ahead. Yeah. Um, you're talking about the F-117 being retired. It... Thank you, Portland. And uh, maybe I'll put out uh, another call if anyone in our audience has any questions for Ryan. He's on the ground in Ukraine. He's uh, fighting there. And he hates trenches. He's usually, uh, from what I understand, he's he's attack. He likes to attack stuff because then he doesn't have to sit around in a trench. Uh, so he hates trenches yeah. and he loves RPGs. Um, That's right. I, yeah, I did have a follow up from a listener. Um, Mr. O'Leary mentioned earlier uh, more modularity in the weapon systems, and I think I know what he meant. But uh, because someone else asked him to clarify, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, I will let him respond to that. Yeah, so basically, well, when I'm talking like modular systems, like as far as like the Switchblade's a good example. Uh, the Switchblade 300 is predominantly fragmentation. Uh, it doesn't really have a shape charge. Um, so you can't, it's not a multi-role weapon system. Uh, another one would be the U.S. grenades. Uh, currently, they're fragmentation. Uh, so they're typically used on a more defensive thing. So... If you, if you throw a grenade into, like, a house or something, you can get hit with shrapnel, too. Um, you throw it into a trench, you miss a trench, you're going to get hit with it, too. Uh, modular platforms, you can basically switch, like, um, for the switchblade, for instance, if it was modular, you could switch it from fragmentation, uh, like anti-personnel to anti-armor, just depending on the situation you need it for. Uh, for a grenade, you could go from, uh, like, a pressure uh, which has no shrapnel or low shrapnel to a fragmentation sleeve, which has a lot of shrapnel. Um, <clears throat> so just things like that. Uh, rifles you can't really do too much with, obviously, but like the rockets where you can switch. The Matador is a good example of dual purpose. Uh, you can use it as a Hesh, which is anti-structure, or you can pull the tube out of the front, and now it's anti-armor because it, the tube on the front turns it into a shape charge. So I think like modularity when it comes to um, like the grenades, loiter munitions, and that stuff is probably something that needs to be further developed. Um, just so you can use the same system to hit multiple targets versus carry three different systems for stuff. Thank you, Ryan. And uh, let's go to Gunther. Gunther, go ahead. Oh, hi, Ryan. Uh, I'm honored to talk to you. Uh, my question is about what do you think will happen in a couple months when it starts raining and gets muddy? Um, Constantine seemed to think that the Ukrainians would be able to do much better than the Russians in their, uh, which would make sense because it's their home 
turf. Uh, but I mean, what's your expectation when things get muddy? Um, I, I mean, the Ukrainians are obviously able to operate better in it. Um, it's their home turf, home environment. They also aren't fully reliant on heavy uh, armor like tanks and that stuff to move for offenses uh, as much. So I think, you know, the Ukrainians will be able to operate better in it. Um, it's going to slow both sides down. But, uh, you know, I think I, I don't think Putin wants to go through a winter war here either. So I think he's going to have to try to push the offensives um through the rainy season of the fall and that's probably not going to go over well for the russians um running through muddy fields sucks uh it sucks even more when you're getting artillery and shot at so um but i think the ukrainians will have the advantage on it just because they don't they're not relying on heavy armor to push all the time so they're more of a light infantry on uh most of their fences anyway uh ultimately though it's going to be whichever side can close the artillery gap the quickest because, um, you know, it's basically an artillery war now. So if you can get, you know, if you can close the one kilometer in between the front lines or 500 meters or whatever, um, I would assume the Russians wouldn't artillery their own guys. Um, so, and you know, the Ukrainians aren't going to artillery their own positions too. So, but I think the Ukrainians have an advantage as far as being more of a lighter uh, <clears throat> attacking style. Thank you, Ryan. Let's go to Leonard. Leonard, go ahead. Uh, hey, Ryan. Uh, I had a question. You may have answered this uh, before. Uh, I, I think I heard you refer to this at least one, one once prior occasion. But um, it regards it relates to the Excaliburs, and uh, Canada has delivered a, a number of Excaliburs uh, into the battle space. I'm just wondering if you've had occasion to see or uh, be, be hands on or or uh, actually observed the any of the Excaliburs in action. And if you have any uh, uh, any kind of details as to how effective they are, or if you've seen any any indications as to their effectiveness in the battle space, uh, so thank you for that, Ryan. Yeah, so <clears throat> I haven't seen any Excalibur shot. I've seen the so the artillery units typically uh, they they don't hide out, but they they stay pretty active, so it's hard to go sit and watch them do their stuff. Um, I've seen the triple sevens get shot and then, you know, the older systems shot. Um, the one thing I would like if I can ever get my hands on one is a Vasilik. It's 2S19, I believe. Uh, it's basically like an automatic 82 millimeter mortar. Um, those are fun to shoot. They're not really that accurate, but um, no, I haven't seen the Excaliburs yet. Thanks again, Ryan. And uh, let's go to Nightlight. Nightlight, go ahead. Yeah. Um, one kind of like it seems like one broader narrative has came out of the war, not specifically about Ukraine, but about the role of armor and the question being asked since, you know, the Russians have lost, you know, 1500 tanks uh, would be a question of whether armor is obsolete. Since I assume you've probably shot at some tanks um, or we spend in their proximity there. What what are your thoughts on it? Is it is it just bad tactics? Is it the bad Soviet design philosophy? They just not know how to do combined arms. And we shouldn't worry about it. You know, like what, where do you see the tanks relevant right now? And, you know, do you think it is obsolete in the future? Because I, I know you don't like being around armor. So I'm just curious what your perspective is on that. Yeah. So for the Russians, I think it's a mix of multiple things. I think it's a bad, bad tactics. Uh, number one. Number two, bad design. So there's a reason the U.S. doesn't use autoloaders and most of the West doesn't use autoloaders. Uh, it's because you see the turrets go flying up into the outer space. Um, I think, uh, I'm not an armor, but, or a tank guy, but 
Um, like the U.S. tanks, you know, they have the blow-off hatches and whatnot on them to prevent that, uh, and then prevent the armor from killing everyone, uh, or the ammo from killing everyone, at least try to prevent that. So I think it's a mix between bad tactics and then bad design. Um, I, and, I, you know, obviously the Russians are going to get better on the tactics with it. They already have. That's why you don't see, you know, 20 tanks getting blown up a day. But um, I don't think armor is obsolete. It obviously has its uses. But it's just if an army can adapt their tactics quicker than what they can get killed by stuff with. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think the... You know, there's tank hunter crews, obviously, in the West with their forces, but I believe the tank crews in the U.S. are probably a little bit better with their tactics, and uh, same with the commanders, so. Uh, thank you. And a follow-up question. Uh, just, like, one thing I, I haven't seen, which I, I kind of expected to be sent over, were tow missiles, and I haven't heard about any of them at all. It's just because the perspective is they're obsolete now and just use javelins or maybe being held back for some reason. I'm just curious if that... If, they're actually even there i have yet to see one i wouldn't mind having one the issue is is they're just not as portable as the javelins but at the same time they have a little bit longer reach um so i mean they got the stugnas which are the ukrainian made ones which they shoot at like four thousand meters um the javelins are useful but it'd be nice if they had an extended range one that went to like five thousand meters because again you you, like just like with the switchblades it boils down to um just how far away this stuff is and you know the russians are going to adapt and try to stay out of range um in the northeast where i was at they were actually lobbing tank rounds at a building to adjust fire to be able to hit where we were and they were way out of range from what we could hit so they're basically plunging fire with tanks that doesn't sound fun at all no it's not luckily they're they're pretty inaccurate once they get to a certain point but it's still not uh not very fun to be on the receiving end of it but um yeah so i mean and again you know just trying to take something out that's you know four kilometers away five or six you know that standoff distance is hard to reach with what they currently have available but um i and i thought you'll probably see that start changing uh once this war is over and it gets analyzed more by the weapon developers and the various militaries that put out the you know um requests for information and stuff like that for new weapon systems Thank you. Got uh, Yehuda joining us. Welcome, Yehuda. Hi there, everyone. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Ryan. Nice to hear you. How's uh, how's the? Uh, I don't know if it's been asked, so I apologize. But uh, the reaction to uh, the efficacy of HIMARS. How is everyone feeling on the ground? They like them. Um, it'd be nice if we had about like like I said about a hundred of them here to really see a whole frontline impact. But um, no, I mean, they're, they're definitely a game changer. I don't know if anyone saw the bridge in Kyrgyzstan. They got smacked with some um, or one or the other. Yeah, I mean, so it's definitely a game changer. I'd hate to be the bridge crew trying to fix that, but um, hopefully they keep hitting it just because it extends that supply line. Um, I think you probably will start seeing them hit the pontoon bridges when they try to do their offenses with that too, I would hope. Um, 100%. Yeah, I know, yeah, I mean, I know, I know you need definitely more a game changer. What's the how is how is I know you need more, but what's the effect, the morale? How do people feel? I mean, yeah, there was a time you didn't think you're gonna get M triple sevens, and now you do. And then there was a time HIMARS, forget about it, a bridge too far, and now you now Ukraine has them. Um, is there is there a morale boost if you were knowing that it's on the they're on the way and and they already got some, so that's a start, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you find out they're in your area, like your AO, your area of operation is definitely a massive morale boost, um, and depending. 
when they get shot, you can sometimes hear them going over top, depending how far away you are. So um, it's definitely a huge morale booster. And uh, it was brought up earlier about, like, the Russian Spetsnaz trying to take them out. Like, those guys aren't going to get anywhere near close to those. Um, so, I mean, at this point, if Russia's going to target those, they're going to have to use their aircraft or they're going to have to get lucky. Um, and if they use their aircraft, you're going to see a lot more of those things getting shot out of the sky. So, 100%. You know, uh, you know what the sound they make is called when they fly over you? No, what is it? It's called the sound of freedom. So it's a little corny, but I'm going to stick with it. And I'll tell you something. Russian news is going crazy. You are, Do you know they already have a couple of HIMARS that they stole in super secret intelligence operations and uh, corrupt Ukrainian soldiers selling them? That's that's the story they're going with. Yeah, at the moment. They, they teleported them from the from the rear all the way to their country. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah, it's nice to see, uh, you know. Denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Yeah, the only thing I can confirm is that it did knock out an M triple seven for about two days, and it was back up and running. So, yeah, that's great and uh, good feeling. Mystical cold, go ahead. Yeah, to, to carry on, I had that Heimar point for a second there. Yeah, I saw them trying to post a picture of a, a, a utility truck and trying to call it a Heimar's, uh, and the doors didn't match. None of, none of the stuff matched. So, uh, thought that was funny. Um, but uh, to the question with, to, to Ryan, uh, I, I know that you don't tend to like uh, armored vehicles and to, to see the U.S. Army is as a program to uh, build a, um, a light tank coming above an IFE but not quite a main battle tank. Do you see that being useful in, in, in future conflicts like this in, like in Ukraine? Yeah, I think I think like a light tank would probably do well. Anything with like a 30-millimeter autocannon or something actually would be decent. Um, again, it's just going to depend on the tactics and how it's used. Um, you know, the, the Russians, when they first invaded, for instance, they'd have, if it was like a BMP, BTR, or whatever, they would typically have the armor in front, and then they'd have like 12 to 20 infantry behind it. And that's just not a tactic you want to use, because when your armor gets shredded, um, not only does it kill the guys directly behind it, but then the guys that have to flee you typically get smashed too. Um, so yeah, like the tactics and design of the Russian stuff was just, it was abysmal. It still is. It's just not as bad as it was at the start. So, so, so a light tank with not quite the, I think the 125 millimeter, I think it is, uh, with like 105 millimeter, the original M1, uh, A1, I think barrel, um, is, is the light tank something that's, would that be used for more urban environments you think, or would that be good in like, trench warfare or something, something like that? I mean, it really had to depend on the specs of it. Um, trench warfare, I don't think it'd be totally that good. So uh, shooting directly at a trench, unless you hit that trench or it's like a bunker, you're not going to do too much. Um, mortars, definitely. But um, <clears throat> typically, you're not going to shoot a tank around straight directly into a trench. Usually, it either goes over in front of it. Um, so the t- people in the trench should be fine, other than a concussion, usually. But uh, unless they're caught not paying attention but i mean it'll definitely have its role to fill um i could see it being more as like more of an in-betweener uh it's just really depending what the u.s army is going to do with the light tank um you know i don't I, I, yeah it's really going to boil down to the tactics and how they're going to use it have you seen any of those bmps donated uh, by eastern european com- uh, countries in uh in theater any modified bmp1s or anything so I'm still really bad at armor identification. 
I know if it's got wheels, it's one thing. If it's got tracks, it's another. And then if it's got a really big gun on the front of it, it's a fucking tank. Um, outside of that, right. I don't really know the different variations of them. Okay. Armored personnel care, thing where people go in. How many of those have you seen uh, or have you heard maybe have uh, been deployed? Because um, they were gifted uh, by other countries to Ukraine. They're not, they're not, desi- they're not favorable but they're better than nothing so i'm just wondering if they're being used yeah you see them on the front lines driving around all the time typically people don't ride inside of them those hop on top um predominantly because they're not armored real well and it's safer i guess to be on top it's safer to not be near them at all but um yeah they're using them all over so that's good to know yeah they're not they're not an infantry person's first choice that's for sure gunther over to you hey uh Ryan, have you has your teams have you had to deal with like infiltrations ever, like Russians pretending to be Ukrainians? Uh, we haven't. So I, I haven't really heard of anywhere that um, has had any guys in the actual land forces that were caught as spies or anything. Obviously, we've we've um, arrested some locals that were relaying information. Um, we don't get a question on because we're foreigners. Number one, number two, the Ukrainian. Um, like intelligence service comes and gets them and does whatever they do as far as the interview. And then they go put them in their little POW area. Um, but I mean, as far as like infiltration, like uh, green on blue or whatever you want to call it, blue on blue uh, from infiltrators, I've yet to hear of any of that or see any of that. So um, d- is it happening? Probably, but I don't, it's not really, it's probably more the Intel side versus actually trying to kill their fellow soldiers type deal. I seem to recall they've had a pretty quick uh, litmus test for detecting a Russian versus a Ukrainian by asking them to pronounce some particular word. Yeah, Polynesia. I can't even pronounce it, though. Luckily, I sound uh, English, so. Well, you're the American Haji, as I understand it, right? Is that (laughs) your nickname? Yeah, pretty much. So uh, we have had some blue-on-blue incidents. Luckily, it was more of a quick rapid fire and it missed everything and then you just yell americanski and they're like oh shit sorry um <laughs> well, not, not yeah not saying they're well and it's usually like nighttime stuff um but i mean yeah there's been blue on blue incidents but it wasn't like on purpose uh you know like in the us we used to call it green on blue i think basically like when an afghan soldier would go you know kill a bunch of americans or coalition forces i have yet to hear of anyone doing that um there's probably incidents of intel stuff getting leaked but um i have yet to hear of anyone actually doing like physical harm so not saying like intel leak doesn't do it but like i haven't heard of anyone just unloading a a rifle into a group of soldiers yet how can you tell if some local is reporting on you uh typically another local comes and tells you um and then what they'll do is they they usually just look at the phone and see who they were calling and what the text messages are the ones that we caught in Irpine um, basically had text messages relaying our coordinates. So um, that was a fairly easy one. Um, And then basically, I mean, just what they do, uh, we caught one guy with a white armband on being an absolute moron because it was still in Ukrainian territory. So um, the ones that we've caught were pretty obvious. Um, I'm not sure how the other ones do. Uh, The Ukrainian, like, special forces, obviously they have locals that help them to identify people um not everyone in russian occupied territory is pro-russian uh it's far from that just depending on the area 
Uh, thank you. Thank you, Gunther and Ryan. Let's go to uh, John. John, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Joseph, and uh, thanks for joining us, Ryan. Um, I just wanted to quickly ask you uh, if you, I've been popping in and out, so I'm not sure if you already mentioned this, but um, to what extent have you and your unit uh, come under a uh, night attack from the Russians? My understanding is that with the exception of some of their, you know, GRU and SSO units or, you know, FSB groups, they don't really have that much uh, night vision equipment. Um, so have you had many encounters with the Russians at night on the receiving end? Uh, as far as like big offensive stuff, at the start of the war in Mashun, they pushed a VDV unit down <clears throat> our sector and they got absolutely annihilated, uh, luckily, by a mortar unit. Um, and they basically all got wiped out. They were in the field the next day. Um, <clears throat> there's been some probing stuff, but like nothing like, you know, five hour, six hour firefight type stuff. It's mainly they send out a little bit of recon group here and there. Um, I don't think they have the capabilities. <clears throat> to actually launch a full night raid or anything like that. Uh, if they did, it would have to be, they'd have to commit a large, uh, a large percentage of their special forces guys to do it. Uh, you mentioned capturing a uh, infiltrator that was wearing a white armband. What does the white armband signify? Is that a non-combatant or is that uh, supposed to be a Russian signifier or how does that work? Uh, typically the Russians wear the, <clears throat> like a white armband. Um, and yeah, he was just, I don't know what his, he was thinking. It was like, what the hell, dude? Uh, typically for the non-combatant ones, if it's civilians, they'll have like a white flag or a thing saying like children in the vehicle. Um, usually if they're civilians though, they're not like standing out front on their phone in front of you or anything. Usually they just try to walk past. Um, but yeah, basically the white armband is what, uh, differentiates Russians from non-Russians. Just like you have Ukrainians that'll wear blue or yellow, just depending on what they're told to wear that day, or green, or whatever color they pick for that sector. Gotcha. And I thought the Russians had been wearing uh, red armbands, so that I was a little confused about the white, but thank you for clarifying. At the start of the war, they were wearing white. <clears throat> John, go ahead. Uh, uh, thank you, Ryan. Uh, as a follow-up to the, to the armband question, um, are they still wearing both the uh, the white and the red band armbands, or have they switched over to one color? And at any point, was there a particular meaning to either of those colors? Because I, I seem to remember a lot of the uh, so-called DNR, LNR guys wearing predominantly red, while some of the regular Russian army units just wearing white. Is that accurate? Yeah, so that's what we were told. Basically, like, the LNR, DNR guys would wear red. Um, at one point when the North was getting attacked, there was, like, a Belarusian volunteer unit with Russia that was wearing, um, like, a black armband or something ridiculous. Um, but I don't know if there's any real signifier outside of that. Um, you know, I, it might just depend on the sector. Maybe there's some units that are, like, the Wagner guys typically don't wear anything, so... Um, I guess it's really maybe de unit dependent. I don't know. I'd have to ask a Russian. But um, as far as we go, typically everyone on the Ukrainian side operates the same color in that area, uh, unless they're maybe like the uh, special ops guys who then don't wear a color. But typically they uh, they notify everyone in the area that they're there. So thank you. And as a, as a final follow up on that point, I remember uh, in the you know initial week or so of the war. The, the VDV, they were wearing the, uh, was it the Ribbon of St. George, the uh, the black and the orange stripes all over their uniforms, and they weren't really wearing the, the white or the red. Are there still Russian units that go around just wearing those, you know, the, the black and orange stripes only as identification? 
I haven't seen any of that um, recently, so I don't know if that was just to signify they were VDV or what, but I haven't seen any of that. We might not have ran into VDV recently either, too, but um, I don't, I yeah, I haven't seen any of it recently, so maybe, I, yeah, I don't know why they were doing that either. So I think the, che- the Chechens have a different color, too. I don't know what they wear, but I don't think they're wearing the white or the red. I'm not sure, though. I'd have to ask a buddy who dealt with them recently. I thought they'd just sit in the back and make TikTok videos. I had some friends that fought against them in a certain AO, and they just basically shot everywhere. Uh, I'm not saying it wasn't effective, but it definitely wasn't uh, very effective, depending on what they were doing. Um, Obviously, anytime you can mass forces in one area, eventually it's going to get effective. But, yeah, everyone was all freaked out about the Chechens, but all the good fighting Chechens are the... uh, more Islamist types that don't like the current government. So not all are Islamist. A majority of the good fighters from the 90s and 80s and stuff were not not the current supporting type that you see now. Yeah, those guys have all aged out of the system, and they're you know too old to be fighting on the front line somewhere. Now it's just a bunch of TikTok kid wannabes. Uh, I saw the most recent video of the Kadravites was them firing machine guns from the open bay doors of helicopters like they were trying to recreate a scene from Full Metal Jacket. And I don't think they could have hit the broadside of a barn door from five feet away with the way they were handling their weapons. I mean, a guy was shooting an AK-47 and changing magazines from the window of a helicopter. Get real. Not like covering fire. He was just randomly firing out into a field. I, I don't... I don't know what he was thinking, but it. I guess I'm, it I'm surprised fun. Russia let him on a helicopter, um, unless it was maybe to find out where anti-aircraft systems were. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Raver's had a little trouble connecting. Let's get his question in real quick. Raver, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, hopefully this has been fixed. I think that helicopter video wasn't that actually Ukrainian. I think it was just like a, a recruitment video, but you know nobody took it seriously. Uh, so I have a question for you, Ryan, and maybe it's already been asked and answered. But we've been seeing a lot of videos of HIMARS and artillery strikes on depots. Have you noticed any slackening in the fires that the Russians are sending your way? Yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. Um, so it, it was asked earlier, basically it's frontline dependent. Uh, in the areas where they're getting hit, you, you definitely see it slacking as far as how much they're shooting. Um, in the Northeast where I was at recently, we got a lot more grad fire coming in. Um, but I think to see like a whole, a whole change in picture, we're going to need, you know, probably, I said a hundred, but we could probably go with 50, uh, to really see a slack on the front line. Uh, as far as like an overall picture of, you know, the Russians are really getting their asses handed to them. Uh, they're not going to be able to supply stuff as much as they were. Thank you. Any follow up, Raver, while we got you here? No, I'm, I'm going to listen unless unless he's got a tank question. <laughs> I realize he, he's still not very good at tank ID yet. No, nope, absolutely terrible at it. I probably should learn the difference, but yeah, uh, eventually uh, the, the anti-tank gunners and the tank guys on on this space are probably like, just learn your shit. So all of, by by the end of the war, I'll know what the difference is. Just see one and make sure it's Russian before you shoot at it. That's all that matters. Um, Raber is a tanker. So uh, uh, if you do have any specific tank questions, you might actually be able to answer it, just, just so you know. Sorry, go ahead, Ryan uh, O'Leary. Uh, the only question would be, like, how do you fit your balls that are so big 
to being a tanker into a tank, uh, knowing all the anti-armor stuffs out there. You, you have me laughing. I can actually answer that. <laughs> it would be interesting seeing uh, how American tanks would function with a more uh, static front line with anti-armor stuff. I can tell you we destroyed two Abrams in the battle for Kirkuk at Purdy, so uh, those didn't fare well, but that was mainly their tactics, and they didn't have reactive armor. Have okay. you gotten support so, from tanks in the past? Oh, sorry, Raver, go ahead. Yeah, so the Iraqis did not handle their Abrams well at all. Uh, the Saudis have shown some uh, similar uh, problems. It just the, the fundamental crew drill and platoon level, uh, you know, being able to cover each other, how you, how you employ... Um, I would not want to be somebody trying to go up against a, a British or a Canadian or an American tank platoon. Um, that's a completely different ball of wax because the secret sauce in any tank is the crew. Yeah, the Iraqis use them as mobile bunkers until they start getting smashed. Then they sort of move around a little more. And I was wondering, Ryan, have you gotten tank support uh, in Ukraine? And maybe without giving away any of their tradecraft or operational security, but... Uh, do you think the Ukrainians uh, use tanks uh, particularly well uh, in your estimation on the ground? Uh, just curious. Yeah, they do. <clears throat> uh, we actually called in a tank for support to hit a building uh, that we were taking sniper fire from because we couldn't get access from the window because every time we'd pop up, they'd lob rounds at us. Uh, my only gripe was that he didn't tell us he was shooting and it shot right, right next to the lower window we were all hiding out in. Um, so that was pretty loud. But, no, they they do do tanks pretty good. Um, they're pretty good at doing, like, shoot and scoot or at least keeping them, you know, uh, pretty well hidden. Um, <clears throat> the Russians are getting better at hiding theirs, too. They realize that if they sit in a tree line, uh, it's a little bit harder for the javelins to smack them. Um, but, I mean, yeah, the Ukrainians overall, even at the start of the war, they weren't, they weren't uh, just bum-rushing with them. But I think, again, that might boil down to different tactics and understand that they don't have an unlimited supply of tanks. So... I think they're just more cognizant of what they were doing. Remaining conscious of uh, operational security and all that, uh, what, if anything, have you heard about partisan activity? I've read a a couple of stories that were, um, I think, deliberately a little vague, uh, but it's been a topic of conversation in the space uh, numerous times, and people have wondered why there hasn't been more in some of these occupied territories, and I've I've kind of cautioned that uh, a lack of news doesn't necessarily mean that there's not activity going on. It's just not something that uh, necessarily gets leaked out because, uh, you know, people want to protect their their operations or just because there's not a whole lot of journalists traveling into those areas. Yeah, I mean, the partisan stuff happens probably about every day. Um, You're just not going to hear about a lot of it because they're not trying to draw media attention to it uh, as far as Ukrainians aren't. Um, Put the target on their back. Yeah, basically. And a lot of it's mainly intel. Um, There's no reason to waste an asset by having them put a car bomb in a car if they're more valuable, you know, consistently relaying logistics lines or warehouses or whatever. So, I mean, you know, in a lot of these post-2022 stuff, there's these territories don't just have pro-Russians in them. Um, So, you know, you got to keep, they just keep it on the down low. They're active. They're actually really active. Um, I spoke with some ex-ones that got out because of they thought they were identified. So, I mean, yeah, they're active in these areas. It's just you're not going to see a lot of press on it because they just don't want to paint a target in a certain area and have people getting, 
you know, rounded up from their house and stuck in a basement for 30 days, 40 days or however long or executed. Yep. I totally agree with you as, as much as we might like to hear about it. 